So what would you say if I told you you could change the people you love for all the right reasons and get the relationships you deserve? It sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Changing the people that you love. But that's exactly what Jamin Fraser talks about in his new book, Leverage. He's a really, really interesting dude that has a different way of looking at stuff. And he makes perfect sense that when things are happening in your relationships that aren't working for you, we've got to have those conversations. And as Jamin says, you've got to be the one who goes first. It's a really, really good chat with a bloke that I think you're going to open your mind up and have a listen to what he's got to say because he'll challenge some of your preconceived ideas and I think leverage might well be your next rate. Better stuff. All right, Jamin Fraser, tell me who should read Leverage. Luke, it's great to be here on the show and thanks for asking that question because it's something that I've thought about uh, long and hard. And, you know, the the first response is, oh, everyone should read this, uh, of course. But I think this is actually a book for people who are ready to go first. Um, in, in all my years coaching people with relationship pain, I reckon that two people are never ready to change at the same time. Um, we have different level, different pain thresholds, um, different desires, uh, different rules, different ideas about how things should be. And I think there are times where someone reaches a limit before the other person goes, do you know what? We have to do something about this. Um, And so this is a book for people who are ready to go first. It's a roadmap for what do you do? Because if you're going to go first, you're going to need the right tools because you can make an awful mess. Just because you're going to go first doesn't guarantee success. Many have tried and failed before you, um, but this is a book to go, okay, well, if I'm ready to go first, how am I going to do it that's going to give me the best chance at coming out the other side with this relationship better than before rather than worse? So you must have had a little bit of pushback with this, with this book from a lot of people. <laughs> Because it's, I, I remember reading it the first bit and just sort of how to, it's basically how to change your partner to get the relationship you want. Is that the gist of it? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, it's, and, it's a provocative title and lots of pushback. And uh, that when, when I first submitted that title to the publisher, they were like, wow, wow, that is so confronting. Um, <laughs> And, and many people have kind of felt like it's an aggressive approach. It's an arrogant approach. It's, a, it's an approach that will manipulate. Um, but I, I don't mind the word manipulate, to be honest, because in, in its purest form, it just means to handle skillfully. So why wouldn't you want to bring skill to the game of your important relationships? So I think, I think the thing about something like manipulation is it's got that bit of a connotation of being a little bit sleazy and a bit a bit, you know, trying to only get what you want. And the overriding thing through this whole book was actually let's get what we both want. Let's do it from a place of love. Let's do it from a place of we want to be together. And I think that that original sort of, oh, this is a bit a bit confronting, once you actually got into it, it wasn't confronting at all. It was actually it was a book about love and I really loved it. I thought it was great. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh the editor who got given this book from the publishing company didn't know me, had not read any of my work prior, and this title arrives on her desk and she she told me instantly, she's like, I don't like this guy, I don't trust him, <laughs> this title's wrong, <laughs> I don't like it. Um, but I can still vividly remember 
her email and then her phone call when she kind of got into it because, you know, it's a scary thing, a vulnerable thing to submit your best work to be scrutinised with a fine tooth comb by someone who doesn't even know you. Um, anyway, so I was nervous about the process and she emailed me first and then called me and said, Jamie and I get it, like this is a love story. Uh, you you are writing from a place of deep love and hope. You, you are talking to people who are in pain, who are suffering because the people there there is something that's come between them and the people they love. The space between them has become polluted and they don't know what to do. And lots of them have given up hope and, and assumed that you can't do anything. Um, so it, it is just a love story. And it's, a, go, it's go back to that thing you just said then about the space between them has become polluted. There's a, there's a bit I really enjoyed in it where you talked about whether, some, whether you have intimacy or whether you have an arrangement. And you kind of talked about cleaning the gap between people. Can you can you explain what you mean by that stuff? Because I really enjoyed that part of it. Great. Well, if you just think about the beginning of any relationship, so um, the space is clean. You meet you meet someone for the first time, and there's natural rapport. They're a legend. You're a legend. Everything's funny. It's all good. It's great. You haven't done anything to offend or upset each other. You haven't heard your political views. Um, you don't know what sport team you barrack for. There's nothing that could you separate you yet. Um, same is true when you fall in love. You see someone and they capture your attention and your affection and and it's the most amazing experience to have this pure, clean space between two people who've fallen in love for the first time. Or, or a, a parent, you know, a brand-new child, the space is clean. It's, it's just pure connection, love, rapport. Um, but that cannot stay like that. It, the law of entropy says that, um, things actually deteriorate. Unless you put energy back into a system, it naturally gets worse. It moves towards chaos and randomness. So that's what happens with our relationships. Just because you fall in love with someone doesn't mean you'll always stay in love with them. Just because someone you respect and like someone now doesn't mean tomorrow they won't do something that, that jeopardizes that. So um, that's the natural life cycle of relationships. They start clean and they move towards pollution inevitably. Uh, whether you want them to or not. You will do something that upsets. You will offend. You will differ. You will annoy. That's inevitable. So You then- will annoy. You quoted some stats from the company LG. I don't know if you You quoted some stats about how annoying your partner is. I don't know if you can remember well, the numbers on I don't- it. I, when I came across this research, I just thought that has to be how I start this book because I don't know why LG decided to do this research, but they took it on board to survey 2,000 UK couples and they found that one third of these couples say they wake up beside the most annoying person they know. And this kind of highlights this point because when you're choosing a partner, you don't you don't select the most annoying person to start with. There's no way you pick that person on day one. You pick the person you are most attracted to, but then they become annoying simply because the space gets polluted and you don't know how to clean it. So if you don't move back to intimacy by cleaning the space, then you get an arrangement instead. Now, there's stuff between you. There's stuff you can't talk about. There's things that really grate and repel, and you just manage each other from that point on. And so no one starts a relationship hoping they're going to have to manage each other, but I think that's the inevitable situation that things deteriorate to if you don't know how to replace clean, clean space and back to intimacy. So how do what's, 
What sort of things do we need to do to clean that space? What's the way we can sort of make sure that the space between you and your partner is actually is actually clean? What are the what are the things that the dirty it, and then how do we fix that? Uh, there are always little things, um, which is which is not surprising if you think about it. It's it's not like sure people do have affairs, sure people do tell horrible lies, sure people do rip each other off, but it never starts there. <laughs> little things become big things. So mm. you know it's it's leaving your your clothes on the floor instead of putting them away. It's it's not rinsing your cup. It's you know it's little rude things. It's smart ass responses. It's it's little stuff. And so it's not actually that hard to clean the space if you're willing. It's just to be an adult and go, I don't like that. Can you not do that again? And the ability to mean what you say and be able to enforce a consequence if they do, so that you're not just bluffing. Um, the problem so the consequence is consequence isn't necessarily, you know, we're going to get divorced or I'm going to leave. Or no, not like at that, all. Is it? No, no, not at all. And this is the thing. You don't always need leverage if, if both people are willing to be adults and go, do you know what? That upset me. Can you not do that again? Oh, my apology. I didn't know that upset you. I feel that that's really irresponsible of me. I will never do it again. <laughs> Great. No leverage required. The problem is you go to someone and say, hey, you know when you do that thing um, that really upsets me? What, what thing? What do you mean? What are you talking about? I don't do that. What do you do? Like, oh, good on you. Like you're so you're always nitpicking your nagging. Best so form of defense is attack. Sorry? The best form of defense is attack. Of course it is. So that's when you go to go, oh, man, now I've got to use a bit of leverage because change is hard and people don't want to change. And so that's where the skill comes in to go, okay, if I don't, bring some tools here for the right reasons at the right time in the right way, this won't naturally fix itself. It will deteriorate and now there'll be stuff we have to manage. So um, the book is the roadmap for when it gets hard to go, okay, there are five things you're going to work through. That is the culmination of what it means to have leverage. And leverage just simply, you know, the mechanics of leverage is just you need a lever to to move something that you couldn't move with your natural strength. So um, there are times when you have to, you 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 require extra resources uh, to create change that you couldn't, you couldn't uh, make happen otherwise. So when when you talk about leverage, it's like if say you want to, you have a crowbar and you want to pick something up, you've got to have like a brick or something near the end of the crowbar to, to, to lever off the sort of fulcrum of it. Is that what you mean? Well, of course, the pure mechanics of a lever, they require requires a fulcrum. If you've just got a crowbar, it doesn't increase your strength. Uh, it's a crowbar uh, on top of a fulcrum. And depending on how close the fulcrum is to that concrete block will depend on how much extra strength you've got to lift that. The closer that fulcrum is to the block um, and the more you'll be able to swing off the end of it and lift that, the, the closer the, uh, the fulcrum is to you, the less leverage you'll have. And so I think that really relates to the amount of love there is in a relationship. Um, you know, your intimate partner is, is the one where the fulcrum is most to the left. You're going to have the most love there and therefore the most chance of fixing this because you want this to work. You chose that person out of all the people in the world because you wanted to spend your life with it. No one forced you to do it. You didn't have to do it. It wasn't because there was no one else left. It was like you chose this person so and they chose you. So, okay, there's a lot of love and a lot of reason to make this work. So, Swing away, bring some tools, have some fun, fight hard. Nice. Uh, whereas a, a stranger who you don't really know and they don't know you, there's no real reason to clean the space if it gets polluted so you don't have a lot of leverage there. There are still things you can do if it's important, but um, the more love, the more leverage. 
Yeah, nice. So can we backpedal a little bit? You're you're a boy from country. You're you're a country farmer's son from Collector, a town of 150 people, rural New South Wales. 150 people. You would have known (laughs) them all. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. And you, you spent you spent a fair bit of your early career as a pastor too, which I guess, and now you're a coach. Is that a how's that as a preparation for being a coach? I would imagine it's pretty good. Yeah, look, it, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, I got given the leadership of a church that I grew up in when I was 23, uh, and and the church had a Christian school and a daycare centre as well. So it was an intense experience of leadership and business and people and conflict and all kinds of things. So um, lots of on-the-job learning about change and resistance to change. Uh, The interesting thing around the pastor frame is that as a pastor, you're invited into people's world to have conversations about change, Um, but very rarely did those conversations ever lead to change. Uh, the, The cultural expectation was that, God was going to magically fix, you know, if I've got problems with my marriage, I I need to pray, I need to have faith, I need to trust, I need to look for intervention. And so that was always an interesting thing because uh, it was a very childlike way of approaching life and I'd find people circle around the same problems again and again and again. So when I got exposed to the coaching skill set, I just thought this is a missing technology. These are actually tools that, equip us to take responsibility for our dysfunction, for our uh, mistakes, for our short-sightedness, for our lack of awareness and actually improve the quality of our life, to grow up, to become adults, to bring skill to the game. So, you know, I was a a decent coach, but sorry, I was a decent pastor. I was wholehearted about it, but I think I'm an excellent coach. I think it really... Um, lit me up and was just uh, it resonated deeply this skill set and I, and I get to be far more useful as a coach than I ever was as a pastor I think yeah okay because you kind of from reading the book and, and getting to know you over the last couple of days you're a ridiculously practical human being from what I can gather <laughs> would that be a fairly uh, fairly good thank, assumption thank you for saying that's a kind thing but to say I, I you have all the emotions and stuff in there and your emotional intelligence is amazing but it's it's how can I – you kind of reckon, use that in a way that's effective and I really like that. And well, um, I reckon I, think, I got that from my dad. I, I think he's a very practical man, very pragmatic. That's, that's the way he organises his ideas. Does it work? Could it work better? And I liked that about him and modelled that and have taken that further than he did, I think. Um, it really is a beautiful way to live. So, yeah, I, I'm – I I you know, I've done um, – academic study and struggled with it just because it doesn't seem to care about if it works it's just is it right is it true Mm. does it make sense and so I, i i get that but all i care about is what is that real life application for this idea what happens when it hits the ground does it give me more of what i want does it improve the quality of my life does it work so um i i think you know this book there's a lot of concepts and theory, but they're all directly related to real-world examples of traction in your life and getting you more of what you want because that's the only thing that, may, that has any value is as I see things. Mm. But you, that, can, that can come across as being a bit selfish and it's not like that at all. But you told a story in it that I, I read and I actually reread it again about feeding the poor when, when you were – I think it was when you were still a pastor and how you just – 
became so disillusioned with that. Can you take us through the sort of thought processes and what happened with that? Yeah, I think that was a, a real wake-up call for me around understanding why I was doing what I was doing, um, which is an interesting part of change in your relationship. Like when someone reads this book, they'll be surprised at how much work they've got to do on themselves before they're prepared, before they qualify to, to bring change to someone else. And so a lot of the time people don't understand why they do what they do. So I tell a story about as, as a church pastor and, and Christians, the, the emphasis was on kindness and on generosity. And so we would go out of our way to find poor people to be generous to. Um, and, and in the process, like, and on the surface, them. that's a nice thing. Well, it seems like such a nice thing. Seems yeah. altruistic, seems pure, seems noble. But when I deconstructed my experience years later, it was incredibly selfish. It was like, I actually need to feel like a good person. My rules for being a good person is a good person gives to the poor. So quickly, where's a poor person? Hurry up, poor people. Make yourself known so that I can give you something and I can sleep well at night. Doesn't matter whether you need it or not. Doesn't matter whether my giving will actually further disempower you. Um, Am I enabling you to stay homeless and and all that sort of stuff? Exactly right. And so there's so much of this lack of awareness that gets in the way of relationships. That is a tightrope though because it still does do good for some people that aren't in a position to help themselves. Maybe not because we we created this black market of (laughs) underground crime um, people were swapping these grocery cards that we were handing out and swapping them for drugs, using them to stand over people. There was all kinds of criminal activity going on that we were funding. <laughs> so Wow. Um, but I think all kinds of labels people use for themselves, oh, no, I'm an empath. That's just how I am. I just consider other people more than myself. That's why I do this. That's why I kind mm-hmm. of get walked over. That's why I'm always considerate of others and I go last. Like. No, you're insecure and needy and you need to feel like a good person. Your rules for being a good person is if other people like you. So you've created this strategy to be liked by serving other people's needs before your own. That's got nothing to do with them. You're using them to sleep at night. So until you face that and address that, you'll perpetuate dysfunction and you'll minimise any leverage you've got for changing your, your situation or your relationships and you'll suffer greatly. So if anyone doesn't want a little bit of tough love, this probably isn't the book for them, is it? Because I remember reading that. Not, a lot of those things I do myself, I look at it and think, you know, I'd never really question it. I just do it because it's a default thing that you do. But I, I get the fact that you feel good and, you know, altruism doesn't exist. We all get good feelings from it and stuff. But Well, even, even unconditional love, I think this is one of the big pushbacks I get. Um, when people are looking at the dysfunction in their marriage or in their with their kids or with their friends, and they're just like, "Nah, do you know what? I just love them unconditionally. That's that's the kind of person I am." Um, uh, that's that's a misnomer. That doesn't exist. Unconditional love does not work. It's not practical. That's an abstract well, theory, and it's it's not true. What you're actually saying. You know, because if you extrapolate that out, oh, you can do whatever you like to me. You can be uh, horrible, offensive, abusive, and I will still give you the utmost love and respect. It's like, really? What kind of a crazy person are you? That's a total disrespect to your own being. And that's actually, you are using that person. You are, you're becoming a martyr. You are elevating your own status by what you can cope with in the world. I'm such a great person because no matter how people treat me, I can still turn the other cheek still love them, still rise above them. I'm a freaking saint. I'm the best person I know. 
it's actually not about them. It's still about meeting your needs for significance and love and certainty. And so there's a lot of that in the book around understanding your own relationship with yourself first and changing that before you dare go anywhere near changing uh, other people. But you've got to get to changing other people, but you earn the right with your own relationship with yourself first. Yeah, you're going, going back to that, that sort of, your opinion of yourself and the sort of box you put yourself in. You had a real good swipe at things like Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams and love languages and that sort of stuff. And (laughs) the science backs you up too. The science 100% backs you up that these things can be self-fulfilling prophecies. And, you know, I I do that because I'm a Taurus or something like that. It's like, you know, those sorts of things. How how, What advice would you give to people who are sort of, you know, pinning their – their identity on on something like a Myers Briggs. Mm. Um, look, I think behaviour is just an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. So it's not who you are. Just say that again. Behaviour is an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. Wow. You are not your behaviour. Your behaviour is a strategy. So at different seasons in your life, you will create a character to behave in a certain ways, to meet needs in that season and protect fears in that season. And you'll think that's who you are. But then you'll show up in the next season as a different person. Like think about who you are at school. You were at school. Think about who you were in your 20s at this workplace with those friends playing in this footy team. Like you, you're a chameleon. You adapt. You change. You create different characters and behave differently in each setting. So um, to find a test that says, no, this is who you are because of how you behave, I think it's looking in the wrong place. Um, yeah. It, it, it's the same as vulnerability. Like I've, I love Brene Brown's work and she's created a real clean space for vulnerability for people to talk about the stuff that's going on in their world. But what's become problematic with it is beca- it's become an endpoint. You get celebrated for vulnerability now. So you put your hand up and say, I've got mental health issues. Uh, I struggle with this. You use a label like, yeah, I'm a people pleaser or I'm a recovering people pleaser or I'm an empath. And you go, oh, celebrate your dysfunction. Great. But the point of that awareness is not so you can stay there. It's so you can fix it. It's like, yeah, great. You can see what's going on. That is an attempt to meet needs and protect fears. Is there a better way of doing that, a more adult way of doing that, a more functional way of doing that that doesn't hurt you and those you love? Of course there is. Grow up. Don't just wake up. Keep, keep the journey moving forward. Yeah, that, that whole idea that we stay the same. Dan Gilbert from Harvard's work on that is just amazing. That They, they did the studies. And they, they saw people 10 years later and said, what do you think you're going to be? And they were nothing like what they thought it was going to be. And you look back 10 years on yourself and you're probably not the same as as what you are today too. So you know, we, we do definitely change. Um, there's a couple of other bits I really loved in the book. Um, one was how to apologize well. Um, can, you take us, can you take us through your strategy for that? Because I think you both got to know that one, but um, yeah. I really liked it. Can you take us through it? Um, well, just to backtrack slightly, so we've gamified this in our family, both between my wife and I and with the kids. Uh, we've kind of thought about if if uh, relationships are a game, if family's a game, if marriage is a game, what are the rules to play this game really well? You know, like if you sit down to play Monopoly and no one knows the rules, how are you supposed to have fun? Um, so we've gone, okay, well, one of the rules to have great relationships is that you apologise properly. Because, of course, we're going to make mistakes. Of course, we're going to upset each other. That's inevitable. We'll do stuff wrong. So we've got to get this clean space again. And in order to do that, we'll have to apologize. So how how does 
an apology happen? Is there a way of thinking about the structure of a good apology as opposed to one that's horrible? And, of course, there is. It's not that complicated. And we've all had experiences of someone saying, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, look, I'm sorry. said sorry. What? I said sorry. I'm sorry. Move on. Get over it. I'm sorry. What do you want from me? It's like, hang on, sorry for what? What are you even apologising for? Um, well, the, you've kind of put three parts to it, wasn't it? It's to sort four, of say, four. sorry for okay, sorry for doing this. Yeah, I did well, the, it because. Sure. So the, the, quickly, the four the four stages of an effective apology are what what are, what are you apologising for? Are we clear about the thing? Are you accepting that this is the thing that you owe an apology for? Great. Two. Why did you do it? If you don't have any awareness around why you did what you did, you're a dangerous person. I'm not going to trust you. Do some work. Do some self-awareness around what was going on for you that caused you to behave in a way that hurt me. Three, a bit of empathy goes a long way. Step into my shoes and feel my pain. Don't be cold and clinical in your apology. Try it on. If if I did this to you or someone did this to you, how would you feel? You'd feel just like I'm feeling. So I'm not being silly or overreacting. I, I do deserve an apology and you would be exactly the same. <laughs> and finally, what's the believable plan that this is unlikely to happen again in the future? If I'm going to trust you and you're safe, throw me a bone here. <laughs> like, yeah, give me that last confidence. that last one was the the first three. I think I probably would normally do, but the last one to say, okay, when this happens next time, this is going to be my plan of how I don't do that again. Well, I and, think, sorry, yeah, I, I I really like that that part of it to sort of say I've thought about this and I've I'm going to be deliberate about what I do with this thing next time. Well, if you just think about the purpose of an apology is to clean the space and rebuild trust, it doesn't actually take time to do that. It just takes a proper apology. You've got to be safe again. And if you can't give me a plan around why I should open myself to you again, then I won't. I'm naturally going to be guarded to you. So it is your responsibility to apologise and suggest a way forward. That's how the, the full circle of an apology goes. Mm. You had an- another another little line that I loved in it was pausing to review the data. Uh, can you take us Can you take us through how to pause and review the data and when you might use that little nugget? Mm. Uh, it's part of how we do conflict in our house too, because it's so easy to have a whole big conflict about different things. You're not even talking about the same thing. So we have a couple of rules that relate to this. So stand up when you're right, back down when you're wrong is a rule in our house. So if someone feels upset and demands an apology, you don't have to give one straight away because you might think, hang on, no, I didn't do that. That's not true. You've got it wrong. You can plead your case, fight hard, like defend yourself. However, when we review the data and just have a look at actually what went down and who did what and the the and it's clear as that, yep, you actually did do that. Uh, great. Well, then, then back down very, very quickly and fix this straight away. Don't keep fighting a losing battle. Um, however, if we review the data and it turns out I was overreacting, you didn't do that. I was mistaken. You don't have any apology. Well, then I will remove that from the table as well and we're good again. So I love making it clean and clinical and going, if we can just have a have an objective look about this, if we can try and be adults about this conversation rather than descending into emotional chaos and backstabbing and defending and attacking, like we could we could fix this pretty quickly, I reckon. Yeah, nice. It's... um. In an ideal world, that sounds unreal, but it's a real, it's a hard, would be a hard practice to get into, I would imagine. But once you did it, I think the payoffs would be amazing. It is hard because, yeah, you're often emotional and upset when you're in, in pain and get hurt. But I think this is the value of having rules. So, like basketball, 
if you slap someone where they're going out for a layup, that's a foul, and you only get five chances doing that before you sub, you're out. So we've just gone, that's a foul. You can't get away with that in our house. So we yeah, know that's right. a rule. We like that that's a rule because, you know, we don't want other people doing that to us just as much as we don't want to do it to them. So the fact that we've gamified it, made clear rules, just goes, now it's less likely to happen because of those rules. Uh, the other the other one I really liked is the, the sort of mutual respect that you and your wife has in that you, you talk about having seasons in your life and times when when – Career-wise, you've actually taken the lead, and other times where you've stepped back and looked up, looked after the family. Can you take us through what you mean by by going through the seasons and how when to lead and when to support and all of that sort of stuff? Um, I mean, there are a few things about this. Obviously, you're trying to create change in your relationship. That's good for both of you. This is not a recipe for selfishness or or arrogance. It's about serving your relationships, and so. Um, you know, in our relationship, we both feel like we're the prize. We both feel like we deserve to be loved. We both come in with lots to give. And so it would be inappropriate for one person to dominate all the all the use of resources or to always have all their projects supported or to always be first. Like that would be so unfair. And so early on in our marriage, the kids are young. It made more sense for Kat to play support and for me to pursue entrepreneurial business ideas. And everyone was happy with that. And and the culmination of that was we I took the family to Germany for nine months to to prove it was possible to be location independent. So it was a big risk, um, but off the back of me taking the lead and Kat kind of playing support. But when we came home, kids were a bit older. It just felt right for Kat to then pursue her her career goals and for me to play support, and that it was her time her chance to have me playing support, me doing domestic duties, me taking care of kids, me putting my stuff on the back burner, not stopping it altogether because obviously I'm still doing some things, but to make sure we're clear about what season is, who's going first, uh, whose goals are taking precedence and priority in the context of our family right now. Yeah, nice. And and to be able to sort of, again, cleaning that gap to sort of say this is what we're going to do for for this season, I thought was a really cool idea. But well, um, yeah. You it was never quite as clean, particularly when it came to the vacuuming, though, was it? Well, yeah, like <laughs> these things all sound good in theory, but, uh, yeah, the practice of applying that, me going, yeah, I can be on domestic duties, easy, I can keep this house clean, I can cook food, no worries. Um, but the standard of cooking and cleaning that I had in my mind was very different than what Kat expected I'd be doing, and it came to a head about vacuuming, as I tell in the book, and, or I thought I was doing a great job. She was horrified at the, the amount of dust. And and so we noticed over maybe a six-month period, we'd often fight about vacuuming. And I'd like, I'd always like, yeah, 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 sorry, yeah, I'll do it better next time. And I never would. And so she'd always nag and get upset, and I, I'd always overpromise and under-deliver. And it was just a recipe for madness. Nothing was changing until we took a step back and went, hang on a minute, um, until Kat makes it my problem, then... I have no reason to change. She's got to use some leverage. She's got to bring some skill to the game because I I think I'm going to do it but don't because in my mind it's already to There's my no skill. consequences to not doing it well. And there are no consequences. Absolutely right. So her, her nagging is empty. I've just got to tolerate it for 20 minutes. She'll settle down, we'll move on, and I'll be fine. And so I said you have to inflict it. If this is important to you, which it clearly is, then make it my problem and by that enforce a consequence. If I don't vacuum to the standard that I said I'm going to because I want to, like I'm not, I'm not resisting the idea that I, I'd love to 
keep the house clean and and to your standard, great, happy, but I haven't found a way to do that yet, so how are you going to make me do it? And so it wasn't that she went straight to divorce. Um, she realised there's a whole bunch of things that she could withhold from me or inflict on me that would get my attention. And she just picked one of the easiest ones, and, and that was um, the look in her eyes when she came home. So from as early as I can remember, it's been super important to me in particular and, and also her, but me me in particular, that when we greet each other after being out of the home for the day, we come home after work, when we first see each other, there's love in our eyes, um, that there's warmth, there's connection, we're excited to see each other. There's not familiarity, there's not contempt, there's not coldness. And so um, she just gave me ice when she came home, could see I hadn't done it. It was just no love in her eyes. And I crumbled. I'm like, I I can't cope with that. That's not going to work for me. <laughs> oh, that's right, the vacuuming. And like I'm a smart guy, right? I could work out how to do more vacuuming. It can't be that hard, especially now that there's a consequence that I don't want to suffer. So mm. problem solved. Worked out how to do more vacuuming, got the love back, space is clean again. Everything, everything's good. Everything's where it should be. And like the book's obviously aimed at couples and to be able to get that, but I actually found there's a lot of things in there from a from a business point of view of how to actually improve those relationships from a business point of view as well and you can you can sort of almost use leverage in the same way if you're familiar enough and friendly enough with the people you're working with was that one of your goals with it to yeah yeah it has to be the goal as well all your relationships if you don't find a way to improve the space then this then space gets polluted that's inevitable so in business partnerships friends family stuff will happen you will diverge you will differ you will upset you will annoy so leverage is about going okay um i got to work out how to bring up something and and create a space where i get an alternate solution because this one isn't working for me and it seems like it's working for them they're not they're not suffering i'm mm-hmm. suffering here so i'm gonna have to fight for change that's hard to do and a lot of people have done it poorly and so therefore kind of feel like it's inappropriate, um, which, you know, um, back to the marriage example, it's on the back of the book that, you know, the old adage, don't try and change the one you love. I, I think it's the single worst bit of relationship advice ever given because lots of people have tried it and it's gone bad so they think it must be true. But but the point is if you don't find a way to change them, they'll annoy the shit out of you and you'll hate them, whether that's your marriage partner, whether it's your friends, whether it's your business partner, like stuff will just annoy you. It will create resentment. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. It's not good for the projects you're working on together and it's not good for the world. Yes, this is hard, but so is not dealing with it. Like tell me you're not going to face suffering if you don't find a way to fight for better conditions. Tell me you're not already mm. suffering. So if both roads are, have suffering, you may as well choose the suffering road that's going to lead to a more meaningful, loving life than choosing the road, the suffering road that's just going to get worse. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the stuff in that, I, I, I do a lot of work with helping people get better at stress. And one of the biggest things in a business point of view is business partners. And it's almost like that sort of work marriage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But that it's often the biggest thing that getting those aligned goals and getting them both with with priorities that are that they're both happy with is just such an important thing. But you need to be able to have those brave conversations and they're people struggle with that. People struggle to be able to have those those brave conversations. So what what advice would you give them to to help them do that? Yeah, well I, I would 
I would relate it back to the first pillar of leverage and that is security. I think whenever you find yourself in a relationship and you show up insecure, you have no power. You're there on their good graces. You can't afford to rock the boat because you'll lose. That's your fear. It's like, well, maybe this is as good as it gets because I don't bring a lot of value here. So I can't afford to um, push back because that'll be exposed. So I think, um, you know, this is an extension of the insecurity project, this book. Mm-hmm. It's it's the thing that undermines relationship health more than anything else in the whole world, neediness, insecurity, fear. It just causes you to settle for far less than you deserve and desire um, and not fight for change. Whereas if you show up secure, then by default, you actually understand that you are the prize. You understand you bring value. You understand the other person's very lucky to have you in in your world. I use the term all the time, I, I am delightful, and I know that, and that's not an arrogant thing to say. It's a loving thing to say, and it's true. I am a, I'm a very kind person. It's good to have me in your world. I add lots of value to the people who have me in their world. So I've done a lot of work to become a delightful person. So I come, I come with so much to give. And so if a person doesn't find a way to improve, then they lose. And, and I think if you can do the work on your own insecurity, your own beliefs about yourself and, and also come to that place of understanding the inherent goodness, the inherent value, the inherent delightfulness that you possess, you're always going to negotiate for better terms because it just doesn't make sense to tolerate less than you deserve. It's it's crazy. Love it. Jamin Fraser, the book the book's called Leverage. We can get it from um from Amazon and majorstreet.com.au. Uh if you use the code YNR, you get a discount on it from Major Street as well. How can we get in contact with you? Oh look, my parents gave me a gift of uh giving me a unique name. So if you can work it out how to spell it, um quite easy to find. <laughs> jamonfraser.com is my website I'm on instagram linkedin facebook i have a podcast called the insecurity project uh, they're, they're probably the main places you could find me awesome mate it's been really great i love the book it was it, it had some great insights for whether it's a romantic relationship or other relationships in your life and to to sort of do it from a place of being the prize and and being worth being treated the way you should it's it's a great book and uh congratulations all right, so the last thing we're going to finish off with is, is our Fast Five. So uh, we asked five, about five books that you've read in your life. So the first one, what was your favourite book as a kid? Uh, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It definitely, I can still smell that book in my mind. It was just such a lovely experience. I got lost in that book. I read it a number of times and uh, I was grateful for that book as a kid. Do you like those sort of fantasy books like? Those like a Lord of the Rings or a Harry Potter or those sort not of not typically. I don't read many of that, and I I think just there was the way that C.S. Lewis drew me into that experience, and there was a bunch of stuff that I learnt as as I went in there that that really was meaningful to me. So yeah, yeah but it's nice. not not a genre I normally read. And what are you reading now? Uh, so I'm reading Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment. Oh wow, that's well, I'm hard work, cool. isn't it? I'm trying. It is hard work, and I'm I'm trying to toughen up a bit. It's one of the classics, and so I'm seeing if I'm a big boy or not. If I can improve my reading skill, but um, I'm halfway through it, and and enjoying the story and the language and the complexity of it. So that's it's fun, right? And what book should everybody read? 
uh, The Four Agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz. That is a short book, but a profound book. It's a it's a book of wisdom, which is what the subtitle says. I read that on a plane going to Melbourne, and it's like every cell in my body was having a deeply spiritual experience reading that book. It's just uh, just glorious. Nice. And is there a self-help book that's had the biggest influence on you other than that one? Yeah, Awaken the Giant Within, which is probably one of the first self-help books I read when I started going down the coaching road. That was like um, mid-90s or something, wasn't it? it was it's an old book, ago, but I, yeah. I read that uh, probably 2010 was when I got my hands on it. Uh, Big Tony, he's a force of nature. Uh, he's still pumping out gold too. His new book, yes. I listened to a podcast with Jay Shetty the other day where he was on, and it, I just can't wait to read that. I haven't read any of his books, but the new one sounds amazing. It's all about all the technology going on in health and he's just mm. he's just cutting edge on everything he's amazing yeah he is he's made such a significant contribution to the personal development space so yeah that book really drew me into this world in a very profound way and last but not least what would your autobiography be called <laughs> when i saw that question i had to think long and hard about it but it would be called phrase uh, that was my nickname at school at high school primary school and i i think I'm always fascinated by where a person started and how that start equipped them or limited them and where they've arrived. And so that would be the, the way I would tell my stories, where I started and what I did with what I was given and what I overcame and what I learned along the way. Yeah, we've told, you've told a lot of those stories in this book and it, it, it's a great read and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So if anyone wants to go out there and get leveraged by Jamin Fraser, you can make that your next read. Mate, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been fun. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks for listening to the Your Next Read podcast. If you'd like to get a copy of Leverage by Jamin Fraser, go to majorstreet.com.au. You can also pre-order my new book, Curious Habits by Luke Mathers. Had to throw in a little plug there. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.